Dear Jesus, what we need now more than anything else in the world is to hear from you. We need to hear from the word of God, which is living and abiding. And so I ask that you would be gracious to us, remove any error or any falsehood from my mouth as we look at the text and as we try to work our way through this passage. And I would pray, Father God, that you would grant me and my friends here today hearts that are open and receptive to your glory, your majesty, your worth, your beauty, and that we would see with clarity what that song was telling us, that Christ is enough, that the glory of Jesus Christ, which is the glory of his Father, is sufficient to meet every need that we have, no matter what it is, including our greatest need, which is the separation between us and God caused by our sin. We ask that you'd come here today and open up our eyes to see your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So the Gospel of John begins with the words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14, which is where we're going to begin with today, picks up right where verse 1 seems to have left off, where John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is where we find ourselves today on our journey through the, the book of John. We have returned to looking at the Word, this reality who we know from the first few weeks was both um, with God from all eternity and was, in fact, himself God. And then we get to verse 14 and discover that this same eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John tells us that this word, this eternal word, absolute reality, infiltrated humanity, infiltrated mankind, human history, and dwelt, literally it means in the Greek, pitched his tent, tabernacled among us, living in our sphere of existence. And, of course, John is talking about none other than Jesus Christ, who we just sang about. He's talking about God, the Son, who is the focal point of John's gospel. He's the focal point of the entire Bible. And he's the focal point of all of reality. And so this is what John 1.14 tells us, that God became man, that the Creator and sustainer of every single thing that ever was has transcended his eternality, transcended his unparalleled worth and glory to become like us, to live in our world, to live in a world fraught with pain and suffering and the very sin that led to all of that pain and suffering, none of which he had any part in bringing about. And as John closes the prologue of his book, what we've been reading here through, chapter, through verse 18 is really a prologue to the entire body of the book of John. As he, as he rounds the last corner of this prologue, he's going to answer the question, why did the word become flesh? Why did the word have to become flesh? Why was it necessary for God to become man? 
And uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Initially, I thought this would be one sermon to cover these five verses, but God had other ideas. And uh, yesterday on the plane, um, changed a bunch of things. And, and I felt God pressing me to uh, engage one aspect of these five verses this week, and God willing next week, engage the, uh, another aspect that is critical for us to see. And so if you have your Bibles, um, grab them and turn with me to John 1.14. And we're going to read through these five verses, and we're going to look at one reality in these five verses. And the next week, God willing, if you think I missed anything, hopefully that's covered in uh, the next Sunday sermon. John 1.14 begins with this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So there's a lot there. We're going to go through a portion of it today. John begins this passage by telling us that the Word who, think about this, never had a beginning. He never began. He's always existed. The Word who never had a beginning and relies on nothing to exist. He's not contingent on anything. He is absolute reality. That word took on fat flesh, clothed himself in human nature, and dwelt among us. God became a man and entered into creation to live among human beings. And this should absolutely astound us. This should shock us. Hearing this fact should shake us to our very core, the very core of our being, and if it doesn't do that, it's not because it isn't astounding. Um, it is absolutely astounding. If, if hearing that God became man doesn't shock us, it's likely due to something broken in us. Um, probably has something to do with the fact that we may have lost any kind of comprehension about how glorious, how worthy, how awesome God really is. And therefore, for John to say this statement, God became man, word became flesh, we've lost the magnitude of that statement about the word. We don't feel it the way that we ought to. This is a massive, unprecedented condescension of divine, uncreated, absolute reality into what is effectively the lowliest and weakest and most broken state in creation, namely humanity. Listen to Paul describe this event in Philippians 2. You'll recognize this because we've, we've seen this over and over and over again. Paul, Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant. Literally, that means slave. Being born in the likeness of men. This is what it means for the word to become flesh. And this is what John is telling us in in verse 14. When the word became flesh, he had something specific that he was going to do. Something specific that John calls out in verse 14. It says, he showed us his glory. He displayed his beauty, his worth. Can we go back to 114? If we've got that slide, I don't even know if we have that slide. There we go. Um, He showed us his beauty and his worth. John calls it the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the glory that emanates from God himself, God the father, shines through his son, Christ Jesus. And that's what we're seeing here. And we said in the second week, if you were here, um, we said in the second week as we went through this book that God is introduced in the gospel of John as one deity that is in two distinct persons. There's a third person. We're going to get to him in chapter three. But John introduces God as two distinct persons realities within one Godhead, God the Father and God the Son. And so John in, is saying in verse 14 that the glory, the, the worth, the beauty as it radiates through the word in the flesh is the glory that proceeds from the Father and is seen and encountered and embraced in the person of his Son. And John 1.18, the very last passage in here, I think we have its, its, its own slide, tells us why this had to be the word. Listen to why John tells us this had to be the son who was with God from the beginning. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John's saying straight up, no one's ever seen God. In other words, there's no human being who's ever laid their eyes on the fullness of God's glory. And there's a reason why that is. There's a reason why no one's done that. In fact, there's a scene that happens in the Old Testament that gives us very great clarity to exactly why no one's seen God. You may recall it from the the book of Exodus. It's in chapter 33. God had just given Moses the, the law. You remember this scene? He's bringing it. They've made several movies about it. He's bringing the law down Um, from Mount Sinai, and he has it written on these tablets of stone, and he comes down and he sees Israel in sin and in rebellion, open rebellion against God. They're worshiping false idols after God had just rescued them. And so he throws these tablets with the law on them down. And if we were tempted to think that that was an overreaction, God validates Moses' anger by shockingly saying, effectively saying to him, step to the side, I'm going to destroy them all. And I'm going to make a nation out of you. Just you. Um, And we have to understand that God had just rescued this people from the most powerful nation on the planet, Egypt. He had proven his worth and his glory and his beauty over and over and over again for them. And in return, they embrace false gods and worship them in front of him. 
And so God's wrath here against the people of Israel is completely vindicated, completely valid. And what we see in Exodus 33 is Moses turning to God and pleading with him to not abandon his people because of their rebellion, though he has every right to do that. And this is an intercession for the people of Israel. Moses needs to know that God won't just leave them, that he will continue to dwell with them and be with them wherever they go, despite their sinfulness, despite their bold sinfulness. And what I want to read is this passage here in Exodus 33, starting with verse 15. And it's a little bit long, but it's vital for us to see, to understand why it is John in 118 can say, no one has seen God. Why no one's seen the Father and why the word ultimately had to become flesh. Exodus 33, verse 15. Moses is talking to God here. And he said to him, to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So in God promising that he will go with his people, Israel, despite their bold defiance of him, Moses interjects with what seems to be, at least at first blush, an intriguing request. He says, please show me your glory. It's almost like he interrupts God. Thank you for agreeing with that. Now I have a question for you. Please show me your glory. I want to see it. In other words, he, he's saying, I, I want to see you. I want to see the one I'm talking to in your fullness, in your greatness. I want to know who you really are. And God tells him, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to, I'm going to make my goodness. I love how that's synonymous with glory. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. And the English renders that here as the Lord, um, but it's really, in the Hebrew, the proper name of God, Yahweh. This is his personal name. That's why it's in all caps. And it's taken from that scene in Exodus 3 when God initially sends Moses to get the people of Israel. You remember this scene. He sends them and Moses says, well, who will I tell them sent me? And God tells him, 
Let me give you my name. I am who I am. I am who I am. And that's where we get the name Yahweh from. It is God's real personal name, and it is a depiction of his absolute existence. Think about this. He doesn't relate himself to anything else. He doesn't draw in from creation definitions for his name. His personal name isn't related to anything we see in this world. It is simply a display of him being, absolute being. He simply is. I am who I am, Yahweh. But God here tells Moses, when I pass by, I got to put you in a cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed so you'll only see the back of me. And verse 20 tells us the reason. No man shall see my face and live. In other words, Moses, you can't see my face, the fullness of my glory, and survive. It's impossible. So I'm going to show you my back. That's as much as I can give you. That's all that you can handle. That's who you're dealing with. You're not dealing with this false God that was created by the hands of man. You are dealing with the eternal God who is right now holding the universe together. But even that reality, that greatness of God being who he is, that could be mitigated. I mean, it was in the garden with Adam and Eve. That could be mitigated. That delta of infinity could be crossed by God and he could show himself to beings, human beings. But one delta could not be mitigated. One delta could not be crossed. And it was that Moses was a human being. And therefore, as a human, he was a sinner. Even with his confidence in God, even how he trusted God in his plan and this relationship of intimacy he had with God, his heart was just like your heart. Every day, it fought against competing desires. He was a sinner, just like Israel, just like us, broken in many ways. And this fact poses the greatest obstacle to seeing the glory of God, to seeing his face. Seeing God's face would be a death sentence for Moses. And that's what God is explaining here to him. And this is true about every single human being who was ever born of Adam. There is before us, all of us, a massive barrier between our existence and the glory and worth and beauty of God. And that barrier is our own sinfulness. It's our own moral defectiveness. And we see this fact depicted over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. But probably most clearly, it's depicted in Isaiah 59. The first two verses of this chapter, the prophet explains why seeing God's face is not an option for us. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is Isaiah talking to the people of Israel in the middle of their sin. And he's telling them, God's hand's not too short to save. God's not too weak to save you, and his ears aren't dull. You have to understand that the reason he's not saving you is because of your 
sin. He has hidden his face from you. The root of our separation from God is our own sin. It's our own iniquity. It's the very reason that Adam and Eve, our first parents, were were cast out of the garden by God, out of his presence. Our sin severs us from any right that we have to be in the presence of God. And it denies us any right that we would have to see his face. And we see this, like I said, throughout the, the Bible, especially in the people of Israel. I mean, you think about the tabernacle, and eventually it becomes the temple when they actually build this structure in Jerusalem. Inside both of those, there was a section that was called the most holy place. It was the place where God's presence was said to dwell as he dwelt in the middle of his people, Israel. And you know this from Bible stories and flannel graphs in, uh, in uh, Sunday school. There was this immense curtain this veil that hung, enormous veil. Some scholars believe it was 40 feet by the time of the temple, 30 feet when it was originally measured out uh, for in, the, in the Exodus. And um, some scholars even say that it was about four inches thick. I mean, it was a massive veil that separated everything else from the most holy place where God was. And only once a year, a person, the high priest, could enter into the most holy place. And when he did that, he had to bring blood with him. He had to bring blood to atone for his own sins and the sins of the people. And in this ceremony, this annual ceremony and all the different ceremonies that happen in between are a vivid picture of the moral barrier between us and the presence of God and God dwelling right next to us. There was a cost to enter his presence as a sinner, and that cost was death. That was the price. Something had to die to pay for the the dishonoring of God's name, which is what sin is. Something had to die to pay for the disregarding of his worth and glory by ignoring him and chasing other things. And for the people of Israel, you know this from Leviticus and Exodus, It was the blood of animals. It was animals, countless sacrifices that were held out to show the costliness of sin. This blood was held out to atone for their sin. But as Hebrews tells us, no matter how many times they did these sacrifices, and they did them over and over and over again, none of them, except for one priest, was able to enter into God's presence And no one could still see God and live. No one. It didn't matter how many sacrifices were made. The blood of animals had no value there to us seeing God until we get to John 1.18. Let's go back to that slide. Where John says, no one has seen God, and then he doesn't stop there. He continues with something completely unexpected. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so who is this only God who is at the Father's side? Well, it's the Son from verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. He alone was the one who could make the Father known. Because the Son 
not only is God, but he's always been with God. He, he's always looked into his father's face. He knows every single aspect of his father's glory perfectly. And John, in verses 15 and 16, will labor to show us why God the Son had to be the one who could show us the Father. So verse 15, for example, says this. John, he's talking about John the Baptist. He's not speaking in the third person. John the Baptist bore witness about him, bore witness about Jesus, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. In some of your translations, it it will have a a parenthetical bracket around it, parentheses. Um, And the author's interjecting with John the Baptist here again, before we get to John the Baptist's story um, in verse 19, that with this quote that he's pulled from verse 30, he's drawing this quote and he's pulling it up. He's saying, listen, let me show you how valuable the son is. The son alone can show us the father because Jesus, though he was physically born after John the Baptist, has always existed as God the son. He was always before everyone. And because he was before John and because he was before all people, he can do what John and anyone else can never do. John the Baptist could only point to Jesus. That's what his job was. It is Christ alone who can show us the Father because he displays the glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. That's what Jesus does. And this means that Jesus doesn't just rank before John, as John says here in his humility. Jesus literally ranks before everyone and everything. There is nobody. He he is without competition. He is without equal. And that's what the author wants us to see in verse 15. He wants us to know that when he says the word became flesh, he isn't just talking about a man like him or like John the Baptist. This was God the Son. He is the only way that we can see the Father. And we see this surface multiple times throughout the book of John. One time we see it is in John 14 in this discussion Jesus is having with his disciples, one disciple in particular, Philip. And uh, you know this probably. Philip is, recognizes that Jesus' time with them is coming to a close, and he says this. Philip said to him, Verse uh, 8 of chapter 14. Lord, show us the Father, and is it, it is enough. It's almost like Moses. Show us your glory. Show me your glory. He's saying, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You can almost hear the pain. Like when I read this, I can tell there's a tenseness in Jesus's voice. Have I been with you so long and you still can't see me, Philip? When you look at my face, Philip, you are looking into the face of the Father. 
the glory of God the Father, the very thing that Moses was pleading with God to let him see. Jesus is saying here, that glory is found in me. That glory is in me. You cannot see the Father without seeing me. And he's not just talking about seeing the physical face of Jesus. We need to make sure that that's clear. This is not, many people saw Jesus's physical face and they never saw a single ounce of the glory of the Father. This isn't about his physical face. He's talking about something else, something deeper. He's talking about the reality of who he was, Jesus Christ, his worth, his beauty, his supremacy, his sufficiency, his greatness, his fullness. When you see that in Christ, you are staring into the face of the Father. And that's why John 1.16, which is our next verse here, after 1.15 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John is saying from the fullness, the abundance, the superabundance is the actual word there, of Christ Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. And this is the fullness of glory that was first mentioned in verse 14. It's the same glory. It's the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what this fullness is the fullness of Christ, the abundance of Christ. It's the the objective worth and beauty of God the Father seen in the person of his Son. And when we receive that, when we see it and embrace it, we are doing exactly what John is describing here. We are receiving grace upon grace. Now, this brings us back to the question that we really had at the beginning. Grace is unmerited favor. It is a blessing that is undeserving. How is this possible? I mean, remember the question that was posed with the scene with Moses, where Moses pleads with God, let me see your glory. Let me see the same thing that John is talking about here. And God says, no man shall see my face and live. No one. How is this possible? How is John 1, 14 through 18 possible? Given the greatest obstacle that we have, which is our sin. And I think we need to recognize that the word grace here comes at a critical time because grace means that there is some solution to that obstacle. It is a precious word. How is it exactly that the glory of God, the same glory that God couldn't show Moses without killing him, can be shown here through Jesus Christ? And when it is shown through Jesus Christ, it becomes grace upon grace. Not just normal grace. I mean, if he just said grace once, that would be awesome. And I take all of that grace and embrace it with every breath of my body. But he says grace upon grace. And there's a few ways that we're going to understand that phrase. But one of them is that this kind of grace never ends. This is a grace that will never end. It will continue for ages unending with no end in sight. It is grace upon 
grace. So how does God do this extraordinary thing? How does he do it for us? Sinners though we be, with this massive curtain between us and him, us in the most holy place, his presence, his face. The answer is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt in the Greek is skynoo, and it is not simply, I'm in your vicinity. It is, I'm coming down and I'm going to live right next to you because I want to know you. I want to be your neighbor. I want to be near you. There is an intimacy in this. And the reason it's so intimate is because he wasn't just going to come and live with us. He was going to come and die for us. The word came to tear down the curtain and remove the barrier that had been between us and God forever. That's why he came. He came to do away with sin forever. And this is why the word grace is so precious in verse 16. This is what the cross was. The cross was a mission to the earth to take that curtain that separated us from God and to rip it to shreds so that it would never separate us anymore, so that we would never be outside of his presence. The same curtain that masked his face so that we could not look into his glory, that curtain was annihilated by the cross. Hebrews 9 tells us that by the cross, Jesus Christ, the high priest, the final high priest, entered into the most holy place and he offered his own blood. And because he was the word, the eternal word, his blood had infinite value to be poured out for an untold number of sins. And when he did that, he secured their eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. In other words, no sin would ever stand between God and his people again. Not ever again. Doesn't matter what it is. It's gone. And this is why in Matthew 27, we see this happen at the very moment of Jesus' death. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God is saying in that scene, the curtain is gone forever. It's gone. There will be no more barrier between me and my people. And and note that it wasn't from the bottom to the top. Man didn't do this. This wasn't something that man did or even conceived could be possible. This was done by the hand of the living God. And it happened only because the word became flesh and because he dwelt among us. He came to live in our midst and then die for us. And the cross that tore open the flesh of Jesus Christ was the same reality that tore open the curtain so that we could enter into God's presence. 
and it is only through the body of Christ alone that we can find our way back into the most holy place where we can be with God the Father and his precious son for all eternity. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the who? The Father, except through me. And I think we often think about this verse as in, I mean, as Christians, the exclusivity of the claims of Christ. I mean, Jesus is the only way to the Father. But we need to allow the weight of the fact that there was before Jesus Christ no way to the Father for that passage to have its full meaning. There was nothing we could do to see the face of God until the word became flesh. And think about this. He did not need to do that. The word could have stayed in the presence of his father for all eternity, enjoying his father's worth and beauty and glory. And it would have condemned us, of course, to a torturous eternity without any joy, without any gladness or love from the God. But even though he had no obligation, he was not constrained in the least to do this. It says in scripture that he became flesh and died for us. And he did this to open a way up into the curtain so that as Hebrews 6 tells us, we will have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on, on our behalf. A hope that enters into the inner place, the most holy place. And so part of our experience as being followers of Jesus Christ who have put our faith in him is that we have unfettered passage to our Father right now. We can go boldly before the throne of grace and cry out to him and ask him and plead with him and seek him as a loving father. That's part of that reality that was accomplished on the cross. But the word that the author of Hebrews uses here is hope. And that means he's pointing to another thing that's going to happen in the future that will bring all of our desires and um, all of our passions and pursuits of God to consummation in his presence and I want to look at that next. In a few moments, we're going to continue worshiping um, through the act of communion, the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of the word becoming flesh. It is a celebration of all that Christ did when he came, entered our brokenness, and dwelt among us. And so if your faith is in Christ, you are welcome to this table and you're welcome to receive these elements. And as you do, what I want to point your, your hearts and your minds to is one last passage here from the end of the Bible. Uh, and I want to show you the hope that Hebrews 6 says is ours because the word became flesh. I want you to see it for what it is. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. Same John who wrote John the Gospel is, or the Gospel of John, wrote this book. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then stunningly, only a few verses later in chapter 22, we read these words. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the city. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I really want you to believe that this day is going to happen, that this is coming. I know that it feels so far removed from everyday life, from work, from making meals, from mowing the lawn. I know that it feels removed from that. But this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It is a day coming very, very soon where you and I, get this, will stare into the face of the living God. And that is all because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The word became flesh. The curtain of our sin will be a distant memory. And we will see him in all of his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That day is coming. As you take communion, realize that we are headed with great speed toward that day and that day when we get there will last forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and worthy to be praised. My, my prayer right now for me and for all of us in this room and anyone who hears this sermon, Father God, I pray that you would get our hearts into a place, into a posture where we feel the magnitude of that statement, the word became fleshed. It simply should not be. That you would enter into our pain, self-inflicted, though it often is. That you would enter into our sorrow and even enter into our sin by taking it on as the high priest of his people and by entering into the inner place where you can make atonement for us and remove the barrier. Thank you, Jesus, for infiltrating our humanity in order to dwell among us. And thank you for the fact that that dwelling wasn't simply locality, 
It wasn't simply being near us. That dwelling was making a way for us by dying in our place. And so we ask, Father God, that your glory would shine very brightly as we take communion, as we worship, Father God, and as we go from this place, that we would see how great it is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.